Hi, and welcome to So, What Do You Do? My name is Colleen McClellan, and if you hear a bunch of strange noises in the background, you're not imagining it. Our puppy is wandering around the house and seeing what he can chew on and knock over. Today's episode features a young dancer named Curtis Thomas. Curtis grew up in New Orleans, and I met him when we were both students at the American Dance Festival in 2007. He has since gone on to become a professional dancer and is navigating a world that is different from that of Jerry Houlihan when she was beginning her career. But I'll let him tell you about it himself. This call is now being recorded. Still there? Yep. Curtis, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, you should know that the episode before this was an interview with Jerry Houlihan. And I went into it uh, thinking, oh, we'll talk a little bit about everything she's done in her career, and then we'll go into more, like, shop talk stuff. And 45 minutes later, I was like, i got to cut this thing off. But I had the most (laughs) wonderful time. Just hearing all of the places she had been and the people she had danced with. So you being um, a little bit younger than Jerry Houlihan, what has your education looked like and what has your what has your dance career looked like so far? Yeah. Um, so in terms of my education, uh, I've kind of gotten to go um, to a lot of places. I'm from New Orleans originally, and I kind of grew up there until I was 14 and then received the opportunity to go to boarding school um, at Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I did that for all four years of high school. And then I was lucky enough to get accepted into the Alonzo King Lines Ballet BFA program with Dominican University of California in the Bay Area of California. And then after about two years of that, I decided to transfer to Boston Conservatory when I finished out my degree in dance. And what compelled you to switch, if, if I may ask, um, to switch programs? Yeah, it was it was a lot of reasons. Um, it was really it was becoming really important to me to establish connections with people that um, I was interested in working with, and I found at the time um, I was kind of feeling this pull towards the East Coast, and when I was looking at schools, um, the conservatory kind of offered everything I was looking for. There's such a wide breadth of dance opportunities in terms of classes that you can take, both in the dance studio and outside, and that really appealed to me, and I really fell in love with Boston um, when I went to visit, so it was kind of a, kind of a no-brainer when I was looking for a new, a new college experience. And what have you done since Boston Conservatory? So since Boston Conservatory, I've worked uh, professionally in the New Orleans dance community. Um, I work with the Marini Opera House Dance Company, which is now the Marini Opera Ballet. Um, I work with Maritza Mercado Narcisse, along with um, a few other local choreographers. Um, I've worked with Two Dance under the direction of Tony Pierce Sands and Yuri Sands in St. Paul, Minnesota. And soon I'll actually be moving to Nashville um, to dance with a company, New Dialect. And I know this comes up in a lovely sort of mini interview you did for a Boston Conservatory ad, but could you speak a little bit to how 
Katrina sort of launched you into, into what you do now? Yeah. Um, so what had happened was Katrina was my freshman year of high school. And um, when it was pretty clear that we weren't um, going to go back home anytime soon, I had applied to this boarding school. And it was clear that while arts was important, it wasn't integral to their um, to the mission of the school. And I'd really begun to miss it and really sort of um, underestimated the role that dance in particular played into my life. And I just craved it so badly and knew going into college that it was something that I really wanted to study and I really wanted my life to be. And Hurricane Katrina just kind of really, really woke me up and helped me sort of figure out how I can get what I want now as opposed to the planning and planning and planning into the future. So now that you are transitioning from this company in the Twin Cities to Nashville, what does your day-to-day look like, you know, timing-wise, and, and how much time you spend rehearsing or planning or just being around? Yeah. So with the company with two, we had a pretty um, robust rehearsal day. We start every day with class from 9.30 to 11, and then from 11.15 to 4.30, we would be rehearsing rep or learning rep or with a choreographer setting new work. Um, the, the schedule will be – Pretty similar with new dialects. We'll go 9.30 to 3 or 3.30, um, kind of under the same same schedule. Always start with an hour and a half long class just to make sure we're keeping kind of like that technical um, aspect of our dancing refine and in practice. And then um, based on our season schedule, we're either learning new work or resetting old rep. And for the dance uninaugurated uh, repertoire or the sort of group of pieces that a company keeps on hand to perform either, you know, at festivals or around around the uh, the regularly scheduled season. So it, it, it sounds a little bit kind of like a nine-to-five that just involves a lot of dancing. <laughs> In a way, it does. And with that, how do you avoid injury and how do you how do you maintain your sort of outside interests within that schedule yeah i mean it's all about kind of self-care um i have a pretty rigorous routine um before my day my dance day starts and after it ends just to keep up um like some sort of body maintenance as well as some sort of um clear peace of mind making art can be very emotionally exhausting because a lot of the times the success of it, especially for dance, depends on how well the group of people get along. And as we all know, some days it's great and some days it's less than awesome. A lot of the work that I do outside of the studio is just trying to keep my body and my mind in a neutral place so it's really available for what the next day can bring. Has that ever affected your personal relationships at all, trying to sort of recalibrate all the time? Um, It's definitely a goal of mine to talk about dance less when I'm outside of the studio. (laughs) Um, If I let myself, if I let myself get caught up in a note or in maybe a little, 
disagreement or something, it can kind of like bog my bog everything else down. So it's it's really important to me to try to stay to stay well rounded and to stay active um in other ways just so just so dance isn't isn't swallowing me completely whole. Right. You know, there's a lot of talk around nonprofits and around the arts about burnout and this idea that people throw themselves into something because it is a passion, but in doing so, they sort of undercut their career longevity, which Mm -hmm. is true, you know, physically more in, like, you know, in dance and things like ballet and these really, like, pretty uh, archaic methods of using the body. But also, well, but also there's that lifestyle component of it. It's not everybody who you know, goes to school in New England and moves to Northern California, then moves back to Boston, then to the Twin Cities, then to Nashville. <laughs> yeah. It's not an inherently bad thing, but it is it is a thing that is your service to the art. And I'd love to know, you know, what gives you that drive? Is it just an innate passion for dance or is it is there something else to it? I mean, I just have always been um, so drawn to dance in general and drawn to studying it and drawn to being pe- being around people who really, really inspire me doing it. Um, and it's interesting because the moves are hard, but they're always, for me, it's always necessary um, because yeah. I am so hungry for more information and so hungry to keep developing my craft um, in like a multi-dimensional way, um, and so I think right. that's what that's what caused me to kind of really, really be on this search um, to kind of discover my what my artistic voice is in this dance landscape that's right now. You mentioned in passing the other day that your partner is really a go-with-the-flow kind of guy and that you are not, and so that's why it works. And, I, and obviously you were being facetious to an extent, but how, <laughs> much of, how much of this moving in service of growing as an artist is a matter of sort of letting go of your plan and making a new one? Well, I feel I come up against a lot of things when I think about my dance career. I think for a lot of dancers, there is this kind of time bomb that exists in the back of your head that states like, okay, you have 10 to 15 years to really hit it hard. So in that time, you kind of have to make the most of what you can. Um, And so there's a lot of reconciling that, which of course is and isn't true. There are dancers who age beautifully, dancers in their 60s and 70s that are still dancing professionally full throttle. Jerry Houlihan, for example, Bill T. Jones, Trisha Brown danced for such a long time before her issues with dementia. Merce Cunningham danced for for a really long time, too. So, I mean, that that kind of time bomb idea is is a little bogus, but can still feel very real, especially out of school, especially with the pressure to get a job. Oh, so it's a lot of balancing that with also just trying to figure out the people that I want to work with. Because as small as the dance world is, it's also huge. And there is just, especially now, so much, so much opportunity. 
And so I'm just in a place of, like, trying to figure out how to best leverage my opportunities. And while you're doing that, how do you make decisions about your education or your sort of marketable skill set outside of dance so that should anything, God forbid, happen, you have a you have a plan B? So one of the really great things about Dominican University and about Boston Conservatory was I feel like I was able to develop other skill sets, um, albeit they're still kind of in the artistic world, but I'm really interested in kind of community organizing and community organizing around the arts. And both schools really allowed me to kind of dig my hands deep and create some opportunities that weren't there before. In terms of connecting dance as a kind of community-based art form. That's so interesting. I hadn't realized that that was an opportunity you had at both programs. Yeah, I was lucky enough to um, work with this organization called the Juntos Collective, um, which was started by this woman, Joanna Pazmolewski, who was a Fordham University graduate. And she started this organization in hopes to discover um, that dance and art can bring people together and having having the shared language of dance can really create bridges um, and connections between people that wouldn't have had it before. Um, so I was lucky enough to travel to Guatemala and Mexico on trips to kind of explore and discover those themes throughout throughout college. You know, I interviewed Dave Hurlburt recently, who, who founded Marini Upper House and was executive director when you were dancing there. And Oh yeah. You know, all of, all of these interviews are coming on the heels of a really horrible, sort of tumultuous week in the U.S. And Dave and I were talking about this idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's good and it's more than good to make a thing of beauty in times like that because it confronts directly the sort of evil things that go on and people can't see you in the scenario. They don't know you. But, you know, as a young, gay black man from New Orleans, how do you how do you use your your experience in the world? How does that inform your dancing? I feel like dance and watching dance and especially participating in dance allows you to come closer to perspectives that are not your own. Um yeah. and it allows you to like really take time to kind of feel through something. And it is my hope that through my dancing and through the works um, of others, especially people who are able to tackle um, these tough subjects in their art form, which is another a gift all on its own, I do believe that by seeing these perspectives, people, people can gain an understanding of a situation that they wouldn't through just clicking through their Facebook on their news feed or watching a CNN video or watching, you know, someone speak on television about everything that's going on. Um, I feel like right. art and dance is kind of a different, a different language. It enters your body in a different way. And I just hope that, you know, as I keep on, keep on dancing and keep on crafting that I can sort of fine tune that connection and really, really reveal something that someone hasn't thought of before regarding people and how people relate to each other. 
you know, we were talking in several of the dance-related interviews about empathy and how dance incorporates the one tool that everybody has and sort of forces the hand of empathy for anyone who's capable of it because it you can't say, oh, I can't sing or I can't play violin or I don't understand the lyrics or the lyrics are stupid or whatever. You're just confronted with another human moving their body in that. And that is so powerful in a way that yeah. I, I don't think any other art form uh, always can be. For young people who want a career in modern dance, what do you what do you recommend for them? Yeah, I would recommend. I mean, I am learning that as important as it is to have kind of like a physical, technical prowess about your dancing. It's also important to be able to be open and to be able to really listen to someone else's ideas and to really be able to to really be able to embody to embody what someone else is thinking almost and to be able to run and fly with that. And what about career planning wise, you know, education and, and mobility and finances? Yeah, I mean, financing is a tricky, tricky beast. Um, I think that, <laughs> I mean, in the dance climate now, you have to find something else that interests you, something else that you love, something else that will will help pay the bills and is worth pouring your time into. Um, for me, that thing is teaching. I am passionate about kids. I love love, love working with kids, and so that kind of balances itself out for me. I think a lot of people feel like because they're going into professional dance or because they're a dancer, they have to teach, and I think that that isn't necessarily true. I know people that make a lot of other, I don't want to call them side jobs because they're not on the back burner, but a lot of other career paths work alongside their dancing. Kind of an incredible thing in this age of Facebook um, and the Internet is the access to choreographers that people have. And I just encourage young dancers to really reach out to the people that they're interested in working with and really see, like, how can you start to build that relationship? Because, I mean, choreographers are now a click of a button away which is a pretty pretty incredible development to the to the international dance scene. What has been your biggest challenge putting together this sort of budding career as a professional dancer? Hmm. My biggest challenge has probably has probably been finding opportunity. Unfortunately, you can do all the networking and you can do all of the summer festivals and the programs, and at the end of the day, a company might just have X number of contracts. So it's really it's really been tricky to find a choreographer or an artistic director at the right place in the right time to make it work. Um, it's always kind of a game of a game of chance in that way. Right. And what has been the most rewarding aspect of, of putting this career together? I mean, I just remember being like six or seven years old, coming from my first dance class, and my mother asking me, you know, do I want to go back? 
and me just saying, oh, definitely, and not understanding that my relationship to this art form was really going to change my life and that it was even something that I could that I could do professionally. I mean, growing up as a black kid in New Orleans East, you don't dance as dance wasn't an option, you know, until it was. And so it's just I mean, it's just still bewildering to me that I get to say that I do this for a living. It's very humbling that I get to do what I what I really love and what I can really be my best self at and pour all of me into. Well, Curtis, I I I couldn't be prouder of you. I think you are just <laughs> just great, a great role model, and just uh, I'm I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy that this is what you're doing. Thank you so much for Thank being you. on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And that's that. Thank you so much to Curtis Thomas for your time. I really do think you're great. And if anyone wants to see video or other materials about Curtis and his work, definitely check out the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash so what do you do and my occasionally updated Facebook page, facebook.com slash SWDYD radio. There is one more episode coming up in the original format of the show with Laura Stein, who runs a wonderful organization in New Orleans called Dancing Grounds, where Curtis actually sometimes teaches class. After that, I'm transitioning the show a little bit. My partner and I have decided to start hosting salons where some of our brightest, most informed friends teach the rest of us what they know. So we'll be recording those talks and I'll be presenting them on the podcast. In the meantime, if you've made it this far, I uncomfortably but sincerely ask you to donate to the show. You can go to paypal.me slash so what do you do? It costs about $15 a month just to keep the content online and available to you. So I appreciate any help that listeners can offer. If you've made it this far and are still looking for something to do, Go to tinyletter.com slash so what do you do to find the newsletter and the archives. I'm Colleen McClellan, and this is So What Do You Do? I'll see you next time. Because <laughs> I'm an artistic genius. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so.